Well, good morning, everyone. So Gordy never cries, huh? <laughs> That's a classic right there. All right, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. And uh, maybe you've just been here for a few weeks, welcome. And if you've been here forever, welcome, or somewhere in between. We're glad to have you. Uh, a lot of changes taking place. My name is Bill, and um, I work with all the churches in our district. Our district is Southern California, Arizona, all the way to Los Alamos, New Mexico, is our furthest church east in our particular district. And we have uh, over 100 churches in the Alliance. And the Eagle Alliance, the Julie, Julie Cox, if you didn't know, works with our children here in the church. She was up here praying. Eagle Alliance is where Carrie Bowman, the church that he started. What, I don't, I wouldn't call that a coincidence. That's kind of a providential thing that Adam and Susie are going there. I think that's, it's pretty incredible because it's like a big nation, you know. It's a, it's a big world of all the places. Last week, we started a two-week venture into the book of Nehemiah. Who is that guy? Well, if you go to the middle of your Bible and you open it up, you'll probably find the Psalms. And if you go backwards from that, about three books, you find the book of Nehemiah. All right? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, if I'm still remembering correctly. So uh, Nehemiah goes uh, back into that area. And it's, it's really, really a unique book. And it, it's about a man who has a burden to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem and its gates. Now, these walls have been down in rubble for a couple of generations, several generations. It's his grandfather and great-grandfathers and great-grandparents that left Jerusalem, not because they wanted to, but they were carried off in what's known as the Babylonian captivity, a true fact of history indeed. When they were carried off, the people of Israel, the city itself, the walls were destroyed and flattened, and the city gates were all, and the posts were all burned. So now we find Nehemiah talking to his brother, Hanani, who had just visited Jerusalem. Now yet, while they were carried off into captivity a couple of generations, several generations earlier, now they were a free people to move around, but when you're carried off to another area and it's far away, you just settle there. And so most of the, many of the people were settled in Babylonia, in that, that entire area, which, you know, it was Persia, Iraq, that part of the world, okay? So here they are. Now, looking back over our shoulder at where we came from last week and where we're going this week. This week, we're going to go to the actual rebuilding of the wall and the significance of that to us, which may not seem very significant as you sit here right now, and I'll do my best to tie that together to make an application. But last week what happened and what we talked about is Nehemiah talks to his brother Hanani who visited Jerusalem, and he says, how are things there? I've heard about it, but how are things? And Hanani says this, not good. The people are in total distress. They're discouraged because the walls have never been rebuilt. The walls are flattened. The gates are burned. In fact, the people in the surrounding territories around them have exercised dominion over the people because their city is unprotected. 
And so there is a general, just kind of a disillusionment that's going on in the city of Jerusalem. It struck Hananiah, or it struck Nehemiah so hard that the scripture says that he sat down when he heard this distressing news in discouragement. And he wept. And he mourned for a number of days. And he fasted and he prayed. That's where we went last week. And then after that, he aligned himself with God. He has, there's a prayer in the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah where he says, Dear God, remember us. I have sinned. My fathers have sinned. I confess all of that sin to you. I want to align myself with you. Dear God, if you would just see it in your will, would you consider helping me to do something about these broken walls? Now, accept your people back. Why were they carried off into captivity in the first place? Because they had rebelled against God. And he's saying, because of that rebellion, we know that this happened. But dear God, renew your people. Bring us back. Bring us back. And so now he goes before the king. Here's, here's the key. Nehemiah says in the last few words of the first chapter, I was a cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? A cupbearer. You've heard of that before. You've seen movies of where there's kings and cupbearers and food tasters and all of that. The cupbearer was the one that tasted the wine. Because sometimes kings weren't very popular. Someone might poison the wine. Well, the cupbearer, it sounds like, oh, that's a person that uh, is disposable. Well, not really. I guess if the wine was bad, <laughs> they're done. But a cupbearer was a very, very highly esteemed person, a trusted person by the king. After four months of praying and going before God, Nehemiah looks so discouraged in front of the king that the king says, something's wrong with you. I can see it on your face. You are, you are disheartened. It can only be a heavy heart. And he says, you got me. Nehemiah says, you got me. It's true. And he prays to God and he begins to answer him when the king says, what do you want to do? He says, I'd like to go rebuild those walls. Would you consider letting me go do that? And the king says, what do you need? And he gives him a ticket to get all the, the lumber and supplies and everything else he needs to rebuild the walls. In addition to that, he sends a, a, a whole regiment of soldiers to go with him to protect them all the way back on this long journey from what we know today as Iraq back to Jerusalem itself. And so he begins to make that journey back. And now he arrives back there and we pick up the story. What you have in front of you, uh, it, it, it won't be quite as long as it looks here because I put a lot of the scriptures right down here for you. But some of the scriptures, uh, it would be too long of a paper if I wrote all of them here. But let me begin with the second chapter in the 11th verse. And it, before I do that, let me tell you what happens here over the next few chapters. The second chapter, what he does is he finishes up by casting a vision to the people. He inspects the wall, casts a vision. In the third chapter, the people all go to work to rebuild this wall under the direction of Nehemiah. In the fourth chapter, they're continuing to build the wall. In the fifth chapter, some of the people come knocking on Nehemiah's door and say, hey, there's some people being mistreated among us. 
and they're poor and they're hurting and they're being taken advantage of. We won't be able to dive into that fifth chapter, but it's an incredible chapter for those of you, especially if you care, and we should all, about people that are hurting and poor and in bad condition. The fifth chapter devotes itself to that. So it's kind of a, a cul-de-sac off of the main highway for that part of Nehemiah. And then the sixth chapter is where we bring the whole story together. Beginning back to, uh, again to the second chapter and the 11th verse, Nehemiah finally gets to Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out, verse 11 of chapter 2, verse 12, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do in Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down at its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not, there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would, who would be doing the work. So now what he's doing first, he's doing an inspection of the walls. Let me make an application to us today. Sometimes you can live in a particular condition or a struggle in your personal life and you've lived in it so long that you don't recognize that the walls are broken down and the gates are destroyed. Uh, it's a little bit of the frog in the kettle thing. You've heard that analogy, haven't you, often? You put a frog in a kettle and you begin to boil the water. You heat the water up. The frog will not jump out of the kettle. It becomes accustomed to his surroundings until he dies. That's so easy to happen. Now, it happens for a lot of reasons, and some of those will break down as we begin to look at what happens when, uh, when the tempter comes and tries to invade the space of what Nehemiah is trying to do here. We'll look at some of his tactics. But we grow accustomed. We, we accept our condition. We're unaware of how bad it gets. Here's my first encouragement right now, and it's for the rest of the message. I want to invite you to take inventory today. Now, you're probably thinking, you know, it's calloused over. <laughs> it's crusty. I don't know if I can take inventory. So here's what I'd like you to invite you to do. I would like to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit, to just speak into your heart right now. Go ahead, and, go ahead and do that now. You can just bow your head for a moment, close your eyes, you can leave them open, whatever you want to do. The Spirit of God, you have access. Show me the rubble, broken walls. Amen. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I really don't want to look at those broken walls. 
I'd rather not pay attention to the rubble. This sermon's starting to depress me already. But I can tell you this, when the rubble's cleared away, when the walls are rebuilt in your life and the structure of what God wants to do in you, uh, the reward, the residual of that is so great, it's worth the pain. It is really worth the pain. Well, here we go. Let's talk about the teamwork. All hands, all in. All kinds of people, all kinds of places. That's the theme of chapter 3, 4, and part of 6. It begins in chapter 3, verse 1. And some of these names I will mispronounce. Please do not judge me. Or I will have you stand up and try to read some of these names. (laughs) All right. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set the doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which there, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananah. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Emery, built next to him, next to them. You're beginning to get a picture already. There are a number of different people that are rebuilding whatever is in front of them, and if they can help beyond their normal boundaries, they're helping beyond their normal boundaries. Now, I listed here nine different things on the sheet in front of you. A fish gate, no nobles, goldsmiths, perfume makers, rulers, daughters, dung gate, fountain gate, priests, and I could have listed about 20 more. I want you to begin to catch some of the intensity of what's going on and the vastness of this particular job. And I forgot one of the most important things in my message. So I'm going to go back and read it. All right, you're already seeing people work. Verse 17 of chapter 2 says, Then I said to them, this is after Nehemiah looked at uh, all all the stuff that needed to be done. He surveyed it. You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God and what he had put on me and what the king had said to me. So the first thing he does before they start to rebuild the walls, he casts a vision in front of them. That's what happens even as we call a new pastor into a church. We ask them to move us to the next chapter, to cast the vision before the body, to say, where are we going? Where are we headed? And of course, there are a number of leaders in the church that will work with the pastor on that, and many of you that will work with the pastor on casting that vision. And then verse 17 says, Then I said to them, uh, verse 18, the end of it, They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. These people were easily inspired. Were they not? Yet, here's what, catch, what, what I, I can't get rid of, I keep thinking about. For decades, for generations, they had, they had moved in and out and around the city, and the rubble and the walls were collapsed. Why didn't somebody else pick this up and start doing something about it? Well, that is, again, a picture of sometimes you don't even realize how bad things are. But Nehemiah had a burden. That's what we talked about last week. He had a burden. And it's amazing what someone with a burden can do to lead people forward. 
whatever burden God puts on your heart, you can lead others forward. Let's look at some of these gates. First three of chapter three. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanoth. They laid its beams and put its doors and bars and bolts and bars in place. And it goes on and talks to, about Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of uh, Hecos, repaired the next section. And then later it talks about, in verse 5, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisor. And that's an indication that sometimes some people, no matter what, won't step up. Maybe they feel like they're a little bit above it. You know, I don't need to do that. Somebody else will do that. Yeah, I've been serving for a long time, and I'm a leader here. Maybe I don't need to do it. But you get a picture here of all kinds of people. Look at verse 8. I love verse 8. Uh, Uzziel, son of Herhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. I love that. Goldsmith. That probably was the prettiest wall of all. Can you imagine? Gold-plated. All the hinges were really looking good. I, if I'm doing a wall, I want the goldsmith to do my wall. But uh, not only were the goldsmiths, same thing in, in verse 8, if you go on, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Well, if the wall by the goldsmiths looked good, the one by the perfume makers smelled good, huh? All kinds of people, all hands on deck, everybody up, all up. All in. But it goes on to verse 9, and it talks about uh, uh, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district half of Jerusalem, repaired the next section, and down to 12. Shalem, son of Haloshiv, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. So now what do we've got? We've got priests. That was the first group in, in chapter 1. We've got goldsmiths. We've got uh, perfume makers. We've got the politicians, the rulers, and we've got their daughters. So everybody is tying on a tool belt and stepping up to the wall and working right there in front of them. The intensity of it goes on. Verse 14, the dung gate was repaired by Makaja, son of Rechab. Now, i, I got to tell you, I, if I were doing the walls and laying out the assignments, I'd have the perfume makers. Do the dung gate. What do you think? <laughs> All right. But, it, but I'm sure it worked out anyways. Maybe they took some perfume over there or something. The fountain gate, verse 15, was repaired by Shalom. And it goes on and on. Uh, then we learn about the priests again in verse 22. But I wanted to read verse 19 because it catches some of the intensity, 19. It's not there written in front of you, so listen up. Next to him. Ezer, son of Jesha, Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from the point facing the ascent to the armory, armory as far as the angle. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle of the entrance of the household of Elishib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Elishib, uh, Elishib's house to the end of it. Are you beginning to get the picture of what's going on here? Everybody is stepping up and taking part in this. Now, in your outline, I put some discussion questions. We're not going to consider those right now. Those are for if you're in a small group, community group, or at home, 
you just want to study and get into this passage, these first six chapters of Nehemiah further, it'll help you. It'll guide you through that particular process. Well, we're hearing about a burden. We hear about a man that gets himself aligned. We hear about him inspecting the wall. We hear about him casting vision. We hear about all the teamwork. What comes next? Opposition. Let me tell you something about the book of Acts. You know what the book of Acts is about? The book of Acts is the birth of the church. All right? Jesus Christ gives his final words and admonition to the people in the book of Acts. What do I mean by final? He was about to ascend into heaven and leave this whole task to a group of about 70 people that were watching. All right? There were 11 uh, disciples at that time because, you remember, Judas was gone by this time. And he's giving his final instructions. He said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven. You know, these were critical, critical words, especially when he knew he wouldn't be talking to them anymore face to face. This was the final speech. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you. And this is exactly what you're going to do. And I want you to do it. So Peter and John, Paul and Silas later, after Paul comes to Christ, they begin doing that. And the rest of the book of Acts is all about guys going out into the synagogue, into the temple, into the streets. Uh, Paul went into the marketplace in Athens over and over. And what did they do? They preached Jesus Christ. They said, man, this one that you killed, the one that was slain, is the one that died for you and he rose again. He rose again for you. And if you accept him into your life, you'll have a brand new life. That's the book of Acts. You know what happens every time they preach that? Go back and look. You can check me out, except for one exception, and that was in Berea. I don't know why it didn't happen in Berea. Maybe it happened later. It wasn't recorded. But within three to four verses, the scripture says, opposition arose. Opposition arose. If it happened to those men and women who were so filled with the Holy Spirit that they eyewitnessed Jesus Christ and they saw him die, they saw him after being born again, to rise up again, to live again. If they saw him, an opposition arose for them. What do you think will happen to us? When we take a stand for Christ, opposition will come up. I used to hate it. I still don't like it. But I'm looking at the other side of the coin of opposition now. Because that's resistance that makes me stronger. I hate saying that. I, shouldn't, I don't want to say that in front of a group of public, in public group setting. Because I'm afraid I'm inviting it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They say, don't ever pray for patience. You've heard that? Because you'll be tested when you pray for patience. But it did happen, and it happened here throughout uh, these first few chapters. Even before Nehemiah inspected the wall, in chapter 2 and verse 10, listen to this opposition popping up. Here we go. When Sanballat, the, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, officials heard about this. Now, who were they? They were governors and leaders of areas all around Jerusalem that were benefiting from the Jerusalem walls being down, and they could overtake the people, take what they want, 
whatever. All right? They could keep them in subjection to them. That's who these men were. When they heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Do you get that? Look, if somebody helps them, then what benefit of that is that to us? In fact, it's of no benefit. Here's what I'd like to do for the next few minutes together. I would like to break down with you various ways that the usurper, my wife Debbie told me I better define usurper. Do you know what a usurper is? All right, here's what a usurper is. A usurper is anyone or anything that wants to trip you up. And then when they trip you up, they love to keep you down. The tempter, the usurper. In the Old Testament, the devil himself, Satan, is known as the usurper. He's the one that wants to trip you, discourage you, keep you down as much as possible. All right? So the usurper. All right. I want to talk to you about the ways the usurper, the tempter, the devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him, works to keep you down. And the very first one here, as I read in verse 10, what was it that these men, why did they want to keep the Israelites down? It was for their own self-preservation. Self-interest trumps God's purpose not only from people outside the church, even from inside the church, self-interest can trump and often do trump God's purpose. I don't like it that way. I don't want to do that. I don't want to reach out. I don't want to make an impact. I just, I love this party on Sunday morning and I feel better because we worship we sing songs that make me feel better and encourage me and we praise God and we hear a message that maybe inspires us a little bit and that's good. That's enough. You see, self-interest can trump what God may want to do. That's why I ask that God would, you would invite God to just take some inventory. Let's look at another one, verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab. Now they get more help, heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So what, what trick or what tool of that is the usurper? I'll tell you what it is. It's, well, don't you just want to be accepted? Don't you want the king and people to feel good about you? There are societal norms here of accepted behavior and thought. You need to be politically correct. You see? That's what you need to be. Just don't make waves. Let's look at other ways that he works. Chapter 4, four verses 1 through 3. When Sambalot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Do you see it being ratcheted up now? At first they were disturbed a bit. You know, I don't like this idea of what you guys are doing, but now they're incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, 
What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they, fi- will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? Burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stone. It's not going to work. You can try. It won't happen. Give it your best shot. It'll end in failure. I'll tell you, this is one of the most actively, aggressively used tools in that trick box of usurper. And that is discouragement and, inadic- and, and inadequacy. Have you ever felt that one? Man, I can't, I can't take a stand. I can't stand up. Man. I mean, who am I? I don't. I just don't have it going on. I, I, I just can't do that. Inadequacy. Let's look at verse 10 and go to another one. 10 isn't in your uh, yours here, but, so, but I need to read it as background. It's so good. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So even the people that were, re- were rebuilding the wall started to recognize all the rubble that was around. Also, our enemy said, before you know it or you see us, We will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to their work. Now is it really ratcheting up? Rubble. We're going to talk about rubble in a few moments. But what's happening is the enemy is starting to point out, look at that, man. You can't build over that. It's too much. It's just too much. This is tedious, and it's going to tear you down. It's going to keep you. You know what? Why go there? And then it, it, it ratchets up to even threats of life. And we're sitting here today in, um, in the French Valley, in Temecula, Marietta, Menifee, this surrounding area. And we don't, we don't think in terms of threats of life for taking a stand for Christ. But uh, that's happening. I know in the Alliance, this church is part of the Alliance. It's 24,000 Alliance churches outside the United States, 2,000 inside the United States, which tells you very quickly we are a world missions organization. And we've had many, many, many missionaries who have given their life for Christ on the field, some not very long ago, and they're under life threat, literally life threat. So this ratcheting up in the tool of the enemy is real. I would love to be able to tell you today that, you know what? That won't happen to you. You won't, and you won't go through all these other things that, that Satan's trying to do, but he will. He, he will try to work on you. However, now that you're, I've got you totally discouraged and you want to just run out, I'm going to, uh, in a few minutes, we're going to end this story with an incredible ending of what God will do in you and through you. It's an absolute promise from him. He's he's awesome. 
verse uh, 12. Then the, um, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. In other words, they're hearing this. You know what they've tried to establish against those rebuilding the wall? A culture of fear. That is a favorite tool, again, by Satan himself. Culture of fear. And sometimes we can believe the lie. Say, yeah, you know what? There's too much to be afraid of. Let's jump to chapter 6 and verse 1. When the word came to Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap. Catch that? Not a gap was left, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat the Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh, can't we all just get along? Now on the surface, you may think, okay, okay, they recognize. The tempter recognizes that we have accomplished something here. Or we've established a church. And there's people that love one another on this in this church. We saw today with the example of this young couple. And people care about this couple. They care about you. Why do you think she was crying? Right? But it's all okay. You know what this is a picture of? I wrote three words here. Next time I'll spell neutralization, right? But distraction, nullification, and neutralization. Think about that for a moment. Look over here. Look over here. Distraction. Satan loves to do that. Keep us our attention over here. Even in our prayer times. That's I battle that all the time in my prayer time. Do you? You start praying and you start thinking of this. Oh, I need to get that done. Nullification and neutralization. Favorite tool. I talked about it a number of weeks ago. Came up in a message. All right, so this church is healthy. And you're healthy. You're walking in Christ and you love him and you worship and you believe it. And you're all in with God here. But if he could just keep you in here, not God, but the usurper, just don't let what's happening in your life in here steep outside those doors into the parking lot, into the businesses, to the people in the cars driving around here, and especially not to your work. And you know what? It would be fantastic if you don't let that seep out into your family life. It's be neutralized. Be nullified. He's okay with that. So were these guys. Hey, why don't we, hey, I saw you rebuilt the wall. Let's just meet on the plain of Ono. Let's, let's go. And what did Nehemiah say? Ono. Oh, <laughs> he wasn't talking about the plain. Verse 11. Oh, I, I've got to go back to verse 8. I know I didn't write it here, but verse 8 is just too important. 6-8. I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up, uh, up out of your head. That's Nehemiah responding to the usurper. 
You're nuts, he says. You're just making it up. It's all in your head. What a great picture of a way to respond. <laughs> they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. What does Nehemiah do? He turns and faces God, not the enemy. And he says, dear God, strengthen our hands. He doesn't argue with the enemy. He makes a couple of quick statements, but he turns and he asks for strength. And that's what he does. In verse 11, But I said, Should a man like me run away, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me. And that's about somebody that says, Hey, you're in trouble. They're going to get you. Uh, verse 13, He had been hired to intimidate me so that I could, would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And so what does he bring up here? Another tool of Satan is intimidation. He, you're not going to get there. You're not going to make it happen. Verse 14. But Tobiah and Sambalot, my God, uh, remember Tobiah and Sambalot, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Nadiah and how she and the rest of her prophets have been trying to intimidate me. What does he do? He stands strong. He never backs down, and he is especially not consumed by the adversary. Because this adversary that we have in this life can consume us. Would you agree with that? Have you experienced that? He can just consume us, and we think about him all the time. And I've talked with people that can't, they can't get rid of something they've done in the past. You know, we've done, I've done this, and it's, I just can't shake it, and I don't know how God could ever forgive me. And it's an area where we have to learn how to forgive ourselves because Christ forgave us, and he separated our sin as far as the heavens are from the earth, and the east is from the west. Intimidation should never stand. You can stand strong and say, my God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you. Then there's that persistent rubble. Remember we read about it. They said there's so much rubble. I would just invite you to consider this. Is there rubble that is in the way that you need to get out of the way? Uh, when my wife and I were first planting a church and had our two young boys at the time, uh, we moved to Florida to plant a church, and it was a fast-growing town. And we were, I was a bivocational church planter. You know what that means? You can plant a church, but nobody's going to pay you other than wherever you're employed. So I started a business that was a painting and wall covering business. And um, it grew and went great. And we thank God because it provided for us. You know what I learned in that business? You know, at first, maybe when I was younger, and I grew up doing a lot of that, worked for some contractors, so I had some experience. But one thing I know about painting, you can't paint over an unprepared wall. Has anybody ever tried to do it? Come on. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. And you especially can't wallpaper over an unprepared wall. And there's a lot of prep. There's a lot of work. In fact, it literally takes more time to do it right often to prep the walls than it does to paint them or wallpaper them. That's why we don't want to do it. 
You know, we just give me a brush and a roller, right? And let me go at it. That's the picture of this rubble. That there are times in our life that we just need to ask God, dear God, would you show me the rubble in my life? It's been there so long, I don't even know where it is. I don't know what the rubble is. <laughs> you know? I'm just asking you, God. I'm inviting you into my life to show me whatever rubble is there because I may not be discriminating enough to recognize it. So I'm asking for your help. And so that's the prayer that I ask you to continue to invite God into. Lord, show me the rubble because you know what? He loves to clear it out. By the way, you probably can't clear your own rubble. It's going to take an act of God. And they just thank him when he clears it. Because it's divine when he clears it. It's so refreshing. All right. Good part. You've been waiting for the good part? <laughs> oh, by the way, on the rubble, let me just give you a couple of suggestions. Talk to a friend. Maybe they could help you. A spouse who can always help you with your rubble. Um. Maybe a counselor or a mentor. Maybe you could be a mentor to help someone else clear that rubble. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15. Let's get to the finish. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. That's teamwork. But I'm here to tell you that can't happen. People cannot rebuild a wall in 52 days, no matter how great the teamwork of an entire city. You can't get a building permit in California in 52 days. <laughs> this is impossible. People can't do this. Don't you know that? Verse 16, When all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations saw it, our enemies lost their confidence. That is a divine moment when there's a particular area of your life where the usurper, where the Satan, where the tempter has been pulling you down and finally you don't have to deal with that one anymore because a complete victory has come into your life. That doesn't mean you can't, you will always have to be on guard. But it doesn't reign over you anymore. That's when the enemy loses his confidence. Now back to that part that you can't do this. You can't build that wall. Because, why did they lose their confidence? They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now there's a Maybe you're feeling sad. What do you mean we can't do it? But here's the other side of that coin that is awesome. God is willing to help, and he will help you. He can do anything, no matter how bad the walls are that need rebuild in your life for him, or the gates, or... Conversely, walls that need be bro being broken down between you and God. He can do this. And he will do this. Worship team, come on up here. We're going to worship with several songs. And uh, while that's happening at, at the beginning, 
I know some of you give online, and, uh, but it is an opportunity to receive your gifts, your tithes, your offerings to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your awesome might and the things you can do. Show us, God, what you can do in our life. Amen.